0: The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, we find ourselves today in the middle of the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. The 13th chapter is a treasure trove of parables, Jesus' preferred method of teaching. When he wanted to communicate what this new reign of God was about, this kingdom, he didn't engage so much in philosophical discourse, but he told stories, shared images, gave them pictures. What is it about parables that's so powerful? Well, I think it's because symbols and images and pictures are multivalent. I mean, they have all kinds of different levels of meaning, they keep generating new meanings over time. If you say something very directly, in straight prosaic language, well, it tends to mean one thing. But when you give a picture, you tell a story, it tends to open itself up continually. So this mysterious kingdom of God is likened to various things. These are the parables. I want to pick just one from the little cluster of stories Jesus tells in today's gospel. A parable that is, I think, at the same time, one of the most puzzling theologically deep, and practically helpful of Jesus' parables. I'm talking about the story of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. Remember how it begins. The Lord says, "...the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was asleep, his enemy came and sowed weeds all through the wheat." and then went off. Let me just stop there to make some comments. A basic biblical motif is that the spiritual life is a struggle. God is sowing his good seed all the time in a million different ways for his purposes. His love, his compassion, his wisdom. God is always about the work of sowing his good seed in us, in the world. But what do we find? We find from the first page of Genesis to almost the last page of Revelation that God's ways are opposed. There's a struggle going on. The Spirit of God in Genesis hovered over the surface of the chaotic waters. The waters of chaos stand there for all those forces of hatred, violence, selfishness that oppose God's ways. The waters of the Red Sea symbolize the same thing as they block the progress of the people of Israel. Jesus on the stormy waters, same symbol. God's ways are opposed by the ways of evil. So in this parable, God sows his good seed and the wheat grows. But then an enemy is identified as the one who sows among the wheat these tares or these weeds that grow up right with the wheat in fact right around the wheat winding themselves around the good plant what does this tell us it tells us that evil by its very nature tends to be parasitic upon the good what do i mean Well, in classical theology, we speak of evil as a privation of the good. Think for a second of blindness. What's evil about blindness? Well, it's the lack of sight that ought to be there. Blindness, as it were, is a parasite on a good eye. It's a cavity or a lack in the good eye. What's sin, but a perversion of what's basically good. A mind, a will, a spirit, an imagination, a body. But sin is a kind of twisting or deformation of these basically good things. The point is, evil is always in, on, and around the good. And see, Christians, this is what makes it so difficult. It's very rare that evil just sets itself up very clearly and distinctly on one side The good is set up clearly and distinctly on the other side. So I see the one, I see the other. More often than not, as Jesus explains now in this parable, more often than not, good and evil are intertwined. One in the other, one on top of the other. What's the result of this? It is very difficult A, to identify sometimes what's evil, and especially difficult to extricate evil from good without doing more damage. You know, a couple of examples. If we're real honest with ourselves, we look at our own motives. What do we find? Well, you know, they're often good. We want good things for the right reasons. Selflessly out of concern for others. But look, if we keep analyzing our motives with great honesty, we will undoubtedly find that intertwined with these good motives are always less than praiseworthy motives. Around our selflessness, we can almost always find some little bit of selfishness. Around our other orientation, we can usually find some bit of self-interest. Our motives are mixed, one intertwined with the other. Several years ago, I was at a workshop, and the facilitator of the workshop said, I want you all to take a piece of paper and write down your five best qualities. The five things about yourself you think are the best. So we all did. We wrote them down. Then he said, I want you now to recognize the fact that all five of those are also your worst qualities. Of course, at first it's kind of puzzling, but the more you think about it, the more you see that he's right. Let's say you put down that, you know, intelligence, that's one of my best qualities. I'm a bright person. Well, that always carries a shadow because if you emphasize intelligence, you might be underemphasizing emotion. Let's say you say, I'm a people person. I'm very good with people. Well, that probably has a shadow that you're not very good at introspection. You're not very good at spending time with yourself. Whatever we have that's good also bears this shadow of evil as though it's right with it, right on top of it, unavoidably. Think of any institution, any corporation, any church, that survived and has done good service. Well, those things are all, they're all good, obviously. They all have good qualities, probably good leadership, dedicated people, a clear sense of mission. But don't we all know, especially during this time, that all institutions, the church included, bear within them a kind of shadow. All institutions are also characterized by corruption, by selfishness by desire to protect themselves. Where do you find this? Well, not clearly off on one side, but often right on top of, intertwined with, all that makes the institution or corporation or church good. The wheat and the tares, one with the other. So, what's the upshot of all this? Well, let's go on with the parable. The man's slaves said to him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? He replied, No. If you pull up the weeds, you might uproot the wheat along with them. This, I think, is an extremely important and extremely difficult principle to come to grips with. Whenever we see evil, we naturally have a sort of crusading attitude. I want to do something about that. I want to extricate it, get rid of it. There's corruption in myself, corruption in my church, in my company, in my family. I will root it out. And so, like a great crusader, I go. What's the danger? If I'm not sensitive to the fact that good and evil are so tightly intertwined, in the very act of trying to extricate the evil, I can uproot and destroy what is good. There's some evils that have to be approached with extreme delicacy. Here's an image that comes to my mind. It's like Jesus' parable. There's a man I knew who had a lung tumor that grew in such a way that it actually had wrapped itself right around part of the heart. When the surgeons saw this, they knew they had to go in with extreme delicacy. Obviously, if they just hack out the tumor, they would damage the heart. It took a surgeon's fine, delicate touch to perform that operation. So often with evils in ourselves, in our society, in our church, we need a very patient and delicate touch. In fact, sometimes, in some ways, it's simply better to leave that work to God. That's why I say this parable is so practically important for us. I think it checks us in those moments when we are so enthusiastic to get rid of the evil that we just go at it with a blunt instrument. Sometimes the best thing to do is to let God take care of it. There's a kind of bracing realism here, I think, in this story that's important for us. Just a last reflection on it. Another great and puzzling truth that emerges from this parable is that mysterium iniquitatis, the mystery of evil. So God sows his good seed, the wheat comes up, and an enemy sows weeds, and they threaten the wheat. Look, isn't God the Lord of his whole creation? Yes. Therefore, if the seeds of evil are sown, isn't it to some degree God's permission that they be sown? Well, yes, is the answer of our great tradition. Yes, at least in God's permissive will, evil is flowing from his own providence. Christians, are there some goods? Now listen, are there some goods that flourish only in and with and indeed because of certain evils. Aquinas says God permits certain evils to bring out of them a greater good. Is it possible that were it not for the struggle with evil, certain goods in ourselves, in our society, in our church would not exist? Years ago in my pastoral ministry, I knew a young woman about seven or eight years old, and she was profoundly handicapped, both physically and intellectually. Her family brought her to church every week, and there she'd be in the first pew, and she was kind of locked into her wheelchair, and it was so obvious that she was in terrible straits. Her grandmother would bring her some weeks, other weeks her parents, some weeks her siblings, her brothers and sisters. What I found so beautiful and so edifying as week after week I saw this young woman in all her suffering and her family, that her family was undoubtedly in powerful ways shaped by the experience of loving and caring for this young girl. That their compassion, their love, their other orientation was undoubtedly stirred up precisely by the fact that they were obliged in love to care for this sister and for this daughter. Christians, are there some evils that wind around the good in such a way as to enhance the good? Perhaps sometimes our job is not to root it out immediately, get rid of it, because in the process we'll do more damage. But perhaps sometimes in the face of evil, the best thing to do is in prayer and in patience Let the delicate hands of God do their work. God bless. I hope that you were moved today by the Word on Fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. To purchase copies of the Word on Fire, call 847-297-4360.